All right. All right. Well, it's good to see everybody today. Um, we took last week off of church, and uh, it was a strange feeling for me. We haven't been together in 10 days, which is uh, odd, uh, but I hope that you had some time with your family. I hope that it was good, uh, and if it wasn't, well, it was time at the very least, right? So at least you can chalk it up to that as well. Um, we're excited this year to kick off a new year with a new sermon series, all about the book of Jude. So for this week and the next three weeks following, we will be in this little book at the end of the Bible called Jude. But before we get into the book of Jude, um, I wanted to just uh, make a little mention of a habit that I think is healthy for all of us as we head into the new year. You know, there are lots of New Year's resolutions that people make, and I could go on a little bit of a, a spiel about how overblown New Year's resolutions are and how they're purposeless and all of that. Um, but despite the fact that I know that to be true, I know that like four out of five people don't uh, follow through on their New Year's resolutions like 15 days into January, I'm still a sucker for them, <laughs> right? I still make them. I, I'm, they're not, I'm not going to follow through on them, and it's not going to happen, but I, I'm still a little bit of a sucker for them. I think the ability to have a, a, a time where you can kind of turn the page and say, I'm going to start a new habit is kind of a fun little thing. And one of the habits that we should, as followers of Jesus, build into the regular rhythms of our lives is this, the reading of Scripture. This is the reading of Scripture, the regular routine reading of the Bible. Uh, some of you may have seen this on Facebook, but we posted a link, uh, I believe it was on like the 31st, but it's still up, uh, with a link to our website where we have uh, kind of culled through and provided a number of different reading plans. These reading plans are varied, they're diverse, it's reading through the Bible in three years, it's reading through the Bible in one year, it's reading the Bible five minutes a day, it's reading the Gospels a certain amount of times. All of these plans are good, and we've, we, I want to encourage you to go and look and find one that works best for you. Uh, the truth of the matter is, is that uh, it's important that we read the Bible. It's important that we read the scriptures, that that be a routine and regular part of our lives, uh, whatever that routine looks like for you. But the reason we read the Bible, and a lot of Christians get this wrong, okay, and I have this wrong belief kind of embedded in me, so I know it's probably embedded in you. It comes from a long uh, history uh, of probably church going and probably guilt that people put on us. But the reason we read the Bible is not to earn a good Christian merit badge, all right? That's not why we do it. It's not because when we read our Bibles, God is happy with us, and when we don't read our Bibles, God is unhappy with us. That's not why we read our Bibles either. We don't even read our Bibles because when we do it, it's a spiritual activity that makes us spiritual people, right? These are, these are not the reasons why we read the Bible. The reason we read the Bible is to live into the story that God is telling. This is why we read the Bible. Many of you have read a good fiction book lately, hopefully, right? And what happens when you read a good fiction book or a good fantasy book? That book kind of lives in your head for a little while, doesn't it? And it colors your imagination and, and it colors the way you see the world. It, it creates a kind of feeling for you and you see things through the lens of that story that you read. And uh, that is the same effect that the Bible should have on the whole of our lives. You know, the New Testament scholar N.T. Wright, who we quote a lot here, has this beautiful metaphor for what the Bible is and how it should affect us. And he says the whole story of Scripture together is kind of like, like a symphony. You can think of it as a symphony. A symphony is one piece of music, 
that has a number of different parts to it, right? And some of those parts sound very different from one another. But it's telling a symphony, it's supposed to at least, tell one story. And in order to really understand a symphony, you, you can't just intellectually understand it. You kind of have to sit and let it wash over you. You have to experience it. You don't actually need to remember everything you heard in a symphony. You just kind of have to experience it. And that is the primary point. But as you listen to a symphony, more than once, what you begin to do is make connections, right? You begin to hear that there's this little piece of music that is in the first part, but also in the third part. You begin to hear that drumbeat that kind of goes throughout and unifies and ties together the whole piece of music. Uh, this is what the Bible should be like for us. Uh, to, when we read the Bible regularly, thoroughly, and consistently, we, we learn to hear the music that God is playing. I think it's a really important thing. And we learn over time not just to hear the music but God, that God is playing, but to play it ourselves, to, to lean in and to be a part of the story that God is telling. And I know of no other way, technically, to learn and to live the story God is telling except by reading the story and putting ourselves into it, letting the story of Scripture fill up our minds and our imaginations and color the way we see and understand the world. This book, the Bible, is not a book of rules. It's not a, it's not a list of laws that we have to memorize so that we don't do bad stuff. It's a book, it's not a book, filled with magical incantations, that if we just pray it the right way, good stuff will happen to us, that, and we'll get the kind of desired result. It is a story, and it is a, it is a real, true story that God is inviting us to live into. Uh, so, that's my long pitch on the Bible this morning. Uh, you can head to the website, and you can check out those Bible reading plans, or you can just open up your phone and go to YouVersion, and they have a lot uh, of good Bible reading plans there as well. Even five, minute, five minutes a day or five minutes every weekday of the week is a good practice. That consistency over time helps us to hear the music, all right? That's what it does. So uh, with that in mind this morning, I thought it would be good if we read an entire book of the Bible together. How's that sound? Open your Bibles to Isaiah. <laughs> no. Uh, this is only going to take a few minutes. If you, can, oh, if you have a Bible with you, uh, either on your phone or physically, you can open it to the book of Jude. Jude is the second to last book in the New Testament. It's right after 2 Peter and right before the book of Revelation. Uh, you can follow along with us on the screen if you don't have a Bible or a phone in front of you, but I would encourage you to read as you hear it as well because that helps uh, to retain information. So there's no chapters in the book of Jude. It is just Jude, all right? So here we go. Jude, verse 1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who have been called, who are loved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. 
though you already know all of this, I want to remind you that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their possessions, uh, their positions of authority by, uh, by abandon, uh, uh, but abandoned their proper dwelling. These he kept in darkness, bound in everlasting chains for judgment on the day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They served as an example to those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. In the very same way, on the, on the strength of their dreams, these ungodly people polluted their own bodies, reject authority, and heap, heap abuse on celestial beings. But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not himself dare condemn him for slander, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Yet these people slander whatever they do not understand, and the very thing they do understand by instinct, as irrational animals do, will destroy them. Woe to them. They have taken the way of Cain. They have rushed to the uh, for profit into Balaam's error. They have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. These people are blemishes at your love feasts, eating with you without the slightest qualm, shepherds who feed only themselves. They are clouds without rain, blown along by the wind, autumn trees without fruit and uprooted, twice dead. They are wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shame. Wandering stars from whom blackest darkest uh, blackest darkness has been reserved forever enoch the servant of adam prophesied about them see the lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all of them of all the ungodly acts they have committed in their ungodliness and of all the defiant words ungodly sinners have spoken against him these people are grumblers and fault finders they follow their own evil desires they boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. Here we go. This gets better. But dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ told. They said to you, in the last times there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. These are the people who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the spirit. But you, dear friends, by building yourselves up in most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of your Lord, Jesus Christ, to bring you to eternal life. Be merciful to those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. To others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by the corrupted flesh. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault, with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, authority. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. Amen. Now, for the remainder of the day, I want to talk about that. How's that sound? Uh, I want to help us get our footing in this book, because we're going to be in this book for a couple of weeks. And undoubtedly, you heard some things when I read that aloud that were a little bit perplexing, right? Not everything in the scriptures is straightforward. There's very rarely any long segment of scripture that you read or hear that doesn't probably perk your interest a little and go, what in the world is that all about? The scriptures are odd, and they should be in some ways unfamiliar to us because they were written uh, 
at their earliest, like 2,000 years ago, in a different culture by people who speak different language with different cultural presuppositions than we do, and different understandings and cultural references and, and uh, basic frames of mind from us. And so when we read something like this, it, it, it can be a little off-putting, and that's okay. But as we dive into it uh, at today and over the next couple weeks, I want to really unpack this dense little book. And part of the ways that we unpack a dense little book like the book of Jude is by understanding, here's my favorite word, the context of this book. Because Jude is actually in this passage, and you, you saw him quote a lot of people. He, what he's doing to start is quoting a lot of different ancient sources here. Some of those ancient sources are scripture, and some of those ancient sources aren't scripture. He's assuming a level of knowledge of the sources he's quoting that his audience will have that we don't have. And thus, it feels a little odd to us. Uh, but, uh, but we're, and we're going to explore some of that in the coming weeks. But to help us just get our footing today, what I want to do is just share some preliminary context for this book. Because Jude is an unusual New Testament book. For a few reasons, but the first reason that it's unusual is its authorship. It is a letter or an epistle that was not written by Paul, it was not written by the Apostle Peter, and it wasn't even written by James or, an, or another apostle. The author of Jude tells us that his name is Jude, and the only way he identifies himself is by saying that he is the brother of James, Jude the brother of James, two very, very common Hebrew names. Um, the name in uh, the Greek version of the Hebrew name Jude is actually Judah or Judas. It's a very common name. Now, we know from the book of Acts that James that he is speaking of is most likely James, the brother of Jesus. All right? So James, the brother of Jesus, became the head of the church in Jerusalem after the church was formed. We read about that in the book of Acts. The apostles had to go and do apostleship work, right? They had to be scattered all over the world, sharing the good news and being apostles. And so the center, the central leader of the church, the core of the church at what was the headquarters in Jerusalem was James, the brother of Jesus. And so it's very possible, not 100%, we don't have, uh, we don't have 100% access to this, but it's very possible that Jude is saying, my name is Jude, I am the brother of James, the brother of Jesus. It's possible that this Jude was actually a biological sibling of Jesus Christ. But Jude, notice, doesn't use that heavy-handedly on us, does he? It would be uh, pretty easy for the brother of Jesus to say, my brother's Jesus, do what I say, right? It reminds me of all of those uh, Allstate commercials that Patrick Mahomes' brother is in with him. Like, I don't know how, apparently when you're Patrick Mahomes' brother, you just get to be in commercials. Uh, <laughs> yes, these are the things I think about. Uh, but, uh, so Jude is writing on the, the authority of, uh, he's writing and he says kind of the authority that he carries is of a sibling of the leader of the church and possibly one of the siblings of Jesus, but he doesn't claim that authority and he doesn't, he doesn't make his arguments based on that authority. He makes his arguments and the authority he claims in this little letter is the authority of a pastor. That's the authority he stands on. He doesn't say he's an apostle, because he's not. He says, 
functionally, I'm a pastor, and I have a pastoral heart, and I have a pastoral concern for you, and so I'm going to lay that out. He says at the beginning of the book that he wanted to write a letter of pure encouragement, just all good news, but because of some of the things that he was seeing in the church, he says he is going to change his focus in order to write a letter of urging or of warning. This is what James, or sorry, excuse me, Jude was all about. He says in verse 3 that he wants to urge his audience to contend for the faith. To contend for the faith. That word contend is taken from the world of sports. It's, a, it's an athletic metaphor that James is using, using here. He does not want his hearers to be passive recipients of the faith. He wants them to contend. He wants them to take an active posture. You know, one of the first things kids learn when they play sports, whether it's either basketball or baseball or football, tends to not be the rules about the game. That's not the first thing you're taught when you sign up for Little League. The first thing you're taught is not even how to do the things in the game, right? How to hit a ball or how to shoot a basket. That's not the first thing you learn. Any good coach of little kids in sports, the very first thing they teach them is how to get in an athletic position, right? They teach you how to bend your knees and get your arms out, get those active hands going, right? That's the very first thing. It's an active position. You see, James doesn't want his audience to be like the, the little leaguer who's picking dandelions out in the outfield when the ball gets hit to him. This is kind of the analogy he's using. He doesn't want us to be all confused when the ball comes our way. He wants his audience to be ready, to contend, to be in an active position, to be prepared to be, and to be active in their faith. And the reason Jude wants them to take this active position is because there are some troublemakers about, right? There have been some teachers that have come into the church teaching some things that if the people just kind of passively receive those things will lead them astray, will lead them down the wrong path. And James wants to warn the church and to help them understand the stakes involved if they're not ready, if they're not active, if they're not willing to contend. Now, when we first read this, this short book, it can feel quite harsh. James is speaking in a way that feels harsh, isn't he? There is a lot of talk of judgment. There's talk of destruction. Uh, and Jude is not speaking in a way that we understand in our culture to be particularly kind. Uh, uh, you know, uh, we're going to tackle this issue of these false teachers in the coming weeks, and we'll talk about them a little bit more. And we're going to look at some of the ancient sources that kind of help us understand why James' tone is the way it is. And those things are going to be super, and I find them super interesting. I don't know what, what you will. But the rest of our time here today, I want to talk about a, a couple of, of things that are important for us to know about why James is speaking the way he is that will help us understand the language he's using first. And then the last thing I want to do this morning is simply draw one kind of overarching theme that I think bookends this entire little epistle that really helps us um, not lose the forest for the trees when we read it. So that's what I want to do for the rest of today. So uh, the first thing that I think is really important for us to understand so that we don't get unmoored by the very kind of big language that he uses in this book is that Jude is speaking in the style or in the mode of a Hebrew prophet. All right? 
It's like Jude has put on the, the cloak and grabbed the staff of a Hebrew prophet, and he is speaking like that. If you read his words of judgment and warning, you he will hear a lot of similarities between the way that the Hebrew prophets warned and condemned Israel and the way that Jude is speaking in this short letter. Jude, in this letter, is clearly speaking to a predominantly Jewish audience. He assumes multiple times that his audience knows the story of Israel, that they're intimately connected with what it means to be a, a, a Jewish person, and that they, that they, from a very young age, have become familiar with this stuff, and that they know what it sounds like when someone is speaking like one of the prophets. He assumes that they're quite familiar with this mode of communication. So while this very strong-sounding uh, language and vivid imagery feels very harsh to us, and in many ways it is, you, cannot, you can't walk into work on Monday and talk to people this way, right? You can't. It's, it's kind of like someone who's operating in the mode of a football coach. I was watching football this week, and I'm always shocked by how much these guys get to yell at their players, especially Nick Saban. He gets to scream in their faces. And if a player does something bad, he goes over to their assistant coach and then he yells at the assistant coach, right? If that was the way people did things at your work, right? None of you would have jobs, would you? This is not appropriate. But there's a mode called football coaching, isn't there? Where you get to scream at people and everybody goes, yeah, that's what you do. That's, that's called football, right? There, there's a mode that James, or Jude, excuse me, is operating in that is a little bit, not exactly the same, but a little bit like that. Uh, Jude is putting on the airs of a Hebrew prophet here in order to help his audience understand what it is he is saying. Giving firm and clear instructions to them uh, about watchfully avoiding teaches, teachings and practices in specific teachers, which will lead them down a dangerous and potentially catastrophic path. He warns them to view these false teachers in the church in the same way that the prophets, for instance, would have warned Israel about paying attention to an immoral king or to a false prophet, right? This is all over the Old Testament. If we miss this, it can be hard for us to read this book because we think in our current kind of cultural terms, and it's hard for us to understand this level or this style of communication. That, and, and why it is that Jude is speaking the way he is. Part of the reason is, is because he's putting on the airs of a Hebrew prophet. So that's the first observation. The second observation this morning that helps us kind of orient ourselves when we read Jude is that Jude is speaking to the church about false teachers, not outside of the church, but within the church. All right? He's not talking about people who are outside of the church. He's talking about people who are within the church. So this is what he says in verse 4. For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only Savior and Lord. He is speaking to people about, uh, about he is speaking to people about the, who make this claim with their lives that Jesus is Lord but whose lives don't align with that teaching. <laughs> uh, that's what he's saying. When we read a book 
it is easily, when we read this book specifically, it's easy to weaponize what Jude is saying against people that you don't agree with, all right? Or people outside of the church who uh, think differently than we do. And Christians historically have used uh, texts like this to, and have weaponized them against people, right? Uh, because we want to feel superior or, uh, or we want to feel good about or we want to somehow control the behavior of people outside the church who aren't doing the things we want them to do. Whether that be, uh, and people use this, right? Whether the, the people outside the church be a, pol a political party or a public figure that we don't like. But that's not what Jude is doing here. He's not weaponizing this teaching and, and, yield, and wielding it towards people outside the church. He says people have slipped in among you. Many scholars think that those who have kind of slipped in may have been uh, itinerant preachers or pastors who would come around from time to time to teach, who have come uh, to this particular community and, to, and, uh, and through whether it's their charismatic style, right, or their great skills of oratory, have begun to convince people of a way of life that does not align with what the apostles have taught about the way of Jesus. This is what's happening. But again, this is an inside, not an outside thing, and that's important to understand. Much like, and here's, here's an analogy that's helpful for me, much like the way that Jesus rebukes religious leaders in the Gospels who use their power and status as a, means, uh, as a means of leading people astray in the Gospels, Jude is doing something similar. And just like Jesus, Jude reserves his most withering critiques and his harshest judgments for those uh, within the church who ought to know better, who are leaders within the church who ought to know better, or who are intentionally... Um, twisting the truths of, of the gospel in the way of Jesus for their own ends. This is why he's so worked up. These false teachers are denying Jesus Christ, not with their words, they're probably affirming him with their words, but they're denying Jesus Christ by instructing people that one can follow Jesus without a transformed heart and character, right? Which is, uh, which is not true. This is why, as Christians, we should be wary of those leaders who claim Christ, but whose lives don't align with what Jesus teaches on the Sermon on the Mount, right? Not that, not that everyone's life is perfect or that we all align, but those leaders who willfully profess Christ and then willfully don't align their lives with Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. This is something we should be worried about. James says here that to live in over-immorality while claiming Jesus is actually to deny Christ with our actions and in our words, this is his words, uh, pervert grace. That's what it looks like. Now, this is, not about, this is not about individuals struggling with sin, and I can't emphasize that enough. We, everyone who loves Jesus uh, struggles with sin, right? This is not about people who are trying to live more fully into the kingdom of God. We all have sins. We all have, we are all imperfect people. The, there, are, there are things, vices, difficulties that all have their hooks in us. None of us, not one of us is exempt from this. We should, and here's what, the, here's what we should be doing. We should acknowledge those things, right? We should be living in community, confessing those sins, uh, praying about them and asking God to help us with them. This is what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. For, uh, for the rest of our lives, we'll struggle with stuff. We will. We'll struggle with pride. We'll struggle with anger. 
We'll struggle with greed. We'll struggle with lust. They're a, a natural condition of our lives. Uh, but thank God, Jesus paid the price for our sin and dealt with those things. But what Jude is critical of here are not peop- is not fallen people who struggle with sin. All right? It's easy to read that and think that. But Jude is critical of leaders here who claim that you can have the grace of God without any need to change at all. Right? This is what he's critical of. Words of warning like this in the Bible that Jude uh, puts forward here and that Jesus puts forward and that the prophets talk about are reserved almost exclusively uh, for those people who uh, knowingly and willingly pervert the message and don't listen to the teachings of Scripture. These teachers are using the name of Jesus in order to acquire a kind of advantage or money, whether that was money or notoriety for themselves. And he says that those people should be quite worried, right? Because Jesus is coming back, and when he does, he is coming specifically to judge religious hypocrisy. Religious hypocrisy. Just like Jesus says to the religious leaders in the Gospels, Jude points out that the people who truly need to be fearful of judgment, even hell, are religious hypocrites. This is who need to be most fearful of these things. At the end of the letter, and here's why, I, here's why this, I'm, almost, I'm positive of this when I read this letter. At the end of the letter, you know who J- Jude says show mercy to? People who doubt. People without faith. People who are struggling to believe. Those people need your mercy. The religious hypocrites who say they got everything figured out but yet live in this way, those people got to watch out, right? This is what Jude's talking about. But, uh, but those religious leaders who knowingly use people, who knowingly use religious language, even use the name of Jesus as a means to benefit themselves, those people are in hot water, Jude says. And we see this all the time, don't we? We see people use religion this way all of the time. People who use the name of Jesus or religious language to manipulate people to get what they want. Right? Pastors, my people, right, use he- uh, put heavy burdens on people's backs and use spiritual guilt to motivate them to do stuff, right? Happens all the time. TV preachers use the name of Jesus to promise a blessing and to take people's money, right? Happens all the time. There are those who use the structures and the language of faith to benefit themselves. This is what they do. Politicians do this all the time to make money, to gain fame, notoriety, to advance their public political career. We use these things, don't we? To sell merchandise, to sell stuff. We use the name of Jesus. We don't have very many uh, Christian bookstores, but a lot of people just slap Jesus on a thing and say, buy it, please, I need to make money. There are examples of this type of thing happening all over the place. And it is easy... It is easy to be taken in by them. It is. It's easy to be taken in by them. But Jude says, be watchful and contend. Be watchful and contend. Take an active posture. Don't passively swallow everything wholesale, even even if it's cloaked in the language of Jesus. If it does not look like the Sermon on the Mount... If it does not look like sacrifice and service and love, if it doesn't look like laying down your life for other people, 
it's probably off the mark, and we would do good in recognizing that. Okay, I'm done. All right, then we'll move on. All right, the last thing this morning I want to say about Jude is, again, easy to miss because of, the, because of the heightened nature of Jude's language. Jude bookends his letter with three words. There's three words that start the book and three words that end the book. They are generally his purpose in writing. And we read them first in verse 2 of Jude's letter. In verse 2, he says this, Mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. Mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. Another translation of this would read, Mercy, peace, and love be multiplied in you. Mercy, peace, and love be multiplied in you. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? And at the end of the book, we hear Jude circle back around to this theme again. He speaks about mercy specifically multiple times, but also of peace and love. Those three words are, form the starting place and the ending place of Jude's thinking in this book. And so they should ours as well when we read this book. For Jude, the false teaching and the sin that he is warning the church about is that which disrupts or perverts mercy, peace, and love from abounding, that, that prevents it, sorry, that prevents it from abounding. According to the New Testament scholar Femi Perkins, uh, in her commentary, she says that Jude sees sin in this book in a very Jewish way, which is different from our kind of Western cultural way. We view sin as a very Western kind of rule-based way. So sin is a transgression of a rule, right? It's a crossing of a line. This is the way we think of sin naturally. It's like running a red light or lying on your taxes or doing a dive into the shallow end of the pool when you clearly saw that you're not supposed to do a dive into the shallow end of the pool. And very often we think these rules are arbitrary. We just need to not do them because somebody out there in power made the rule. And so we don't want to cross that line. But Jude doesn't necessarily see sin that way. And it's honestly not a very, uh, it's not a very Hebraic way of seeing or understanding sin. Jude sees sin uh, as a kind of disruption of God's well-ordered world. It's like a, a short circuit in the system of the world. It's like a big record scratch when you're listening to a good song. Sin for Jude is that which stands in the way or prevents mercy, peace, and love from being multiplied in the lives of human beings. Jude sees these sins kind of like a dam. You can, I, when I was reading this, I thought of this image. Kind of like a dam that's holding back the floodwaters of mercy, peace, and love that God wants to bring into our lives. Sin has this way of disrupting the good that God created and wants to bring into our lives. Sin has this way of holding back the flourishing that God wants for each and every one of us. But the sins that Jude warns about in this passage have the ability, have the capability of short-circuiting the flood or short-circuiting the multiplication of grace and love and mercy and peace in our lives. Andrew, you can swing up. And, and we know this, don't we? We know the things we do which, which short-circuit the good that God wants to bring into our lives. Sin is not primarily, I think, bad because it crosses some arbitrary line that God made in eternity past. 
Sin is a disruption in the fabric of God's good world. And like a dam holds back the goodness that God wants to bring flowing to us. Sin naturally holds us back from everything. And God wants us to remove those blocks in our lives and to see what he will do. And to see the goodness that God wants to bring into our lives. God wants to multiply in your life and in my life mercy, peace, and love in an ever-increasing way. And how many times in our lives have we seen the ways in which we block that flow for ourselves? Here's an example. If you struggle with anger, right, and you have outbursts and you're always at odds with people, whether it's at work or in your personal life, guess what? Not a lot of peace, right? But God wants to deal with our anger in order that we would have lives of peace. And the same goes for mercy and love, right? If you're not showing people mercy in your life, you won't receive mercy, the scriptures tell us. Not because God's withholding it from you, because it's the natural law of our world that those who live with mercy and love somehow receive it back. And it is able to be multiplied in our lives. And this morning, I just think there's one question as we, as we conclude the kind of opening message in this series. And I think it's the question that Jude kind of implicitly asks us when we read it. What sin, here's the question, what sin resides in your life that is holding back mercy, peace, and love from being multiplied? It's going to be different for every one of us. And we all have one, just FYI. If you're like, I don't think there's one, there's one. <laughs> you need to figure it out. Uh, all of us. Is it greed? Is it pride? Is it unforgiveness? Is it selfishness? Is it lust? Is it self-centeredness? There's something there, right? What is it that is holding back the multiplication of God's mercy, peace, and love in your life and in my life? We all have stuff. All right, that's the baseline. We all have stuff, and the plan of God for you is that your heart and my heart would be transformed to such an extent that mercy, peace, and love would grow exponentially, would be multiplied. And if they are not growing exponentially, this is just what it is, we have probably capped that via our own actions and our own sins. We have dammed them up, in a sense. And I believe this morning that the Holy Spirit may be wanting to lovingly, not in condemnation, but to lovingly reveal some of those things to us. All right? Not so that we would experience condemnation, but so that we could get out of our own way. I don't know about you, but I find that most of the time in my own life, the thing that is in my way is not other people. <laughs> it's me then we could step into just a little bit more this year into an ever ever increasing levels of mercy love and peace you want to do that with me this morning would you stand as we conclude here and just in a moment of prayer together if you would just uh, bow your heads with me that we would just pray if, if God has already brought that thing to your heart that like is, might be holding back you know might be damning up the flow of mercy peace and love that God wants to bring into your life just hold that in prayer before God if you
can't think of anything right now, just pray the simple prayer. God, would you reveal what it is in my life uh, that might be damming up your mercy or your peace or your love that wants to flow towards me? And just in a just in an attitude of prayer this morning, would you just ask that question or offer it up to God? And would you just ask for his help in dealing with that? And by so doing, you you're actively partnering with the work of the Holy Spirit in your life to see what it is that God might do. This year, God might just do something, right? Maybe it's a really good thing to just be open to the possibility that something this year might just happen that's good, right? Let's pray. Father, we love you. And we thank you for your word to us, Jesus. And we, right now, just in an attitude of prayer, we we hold uh, what if whatever it is, if we know that thing that's been damming up the mercy, peace, and love that God wants to bring towards us, we know what that thing is. We just hold it up to you in prayer right now in the name of Jesus. And we say, Lord Jesus, would you help me to identify those things in my life which, which hold me back, which keep me from this multiplication of your good and flourishing life that you have for me? And would you help me, would you give me the courage to actively those things out of my life so that I can step more fully into the person that you've created to me to be. So I can step more fully into your kingdom purposes this year. God, we pray this prayer both for each individual in this place and for us collectively as a church. Lord, we pray for a flood this year of mercy, of peace, and of love over every life in this place. Over every life joining us online. Pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. And amen. All right. All right. Well, thanks for being with us this morning. Uh, you can, uh, if you brought a gift, you can place it in the uh, box on the back wall on your way out. Uh, it's good to see you all. Go today in the grace and in the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ.